We have to remember, these games don't exist in a vacuum. Hello and welcome to Game On Girl, the podcast where we talk about gender and game culture. I'm your host, Regina McMenemy. And I'm your co-host, Rhonda Oglesby. Today we'll be discussing the first installment of Anita Sarkeesian's video series, Tropes vs. Women in Video Games, The Damsel in Distress, Part 1. And we've invited Game On Girl writer, Toria Spencer, to join us. So stay tuned and we're glad you're listening to Game On Girl. We're glad to have Toria on the show with us today. Toria is a writer, gamer, and film buff with a sharp wit and a strong feminist inclinations. You might recognize her from episode 12 of the show where we discuss the definitions of casual and hardcore gamers. On the site, Toria often discusses representations of gender in games and movies, as well as aspects of gamification. We're delighted to have her join us for this discussion of tropes versus women in video games, part one. So welcome to the show yet again, Toria. That was quite the introduction you gave me. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's all true as far as I'm concerned, so. (laughs) You did leave an impression. Yes, absolutely. That's always good to know, so thank you. Well, to introduce the video that we're going to talk about today, um, let me read the introduction directly from the website uh, that was written by Anita Sarkeesian um, on her FeminineFrequency.com. Anita Sarkeesian is a media critic and the creator of Feminist Frequency, a video web series that explores the representations of women in pop culture narratives. Her work focuses on deconstructing the stereotypes and tropes associated with women in popular culture, as well as highlighting issues surrounding the targeted harassment of women in online and gaming spaces. So first, we want to kind of look at some specifics. The, um, the video, part one, is currently posted on her website. You can go there, femininefrequency.com. It's very easy to find and give it a look. Um, if you haven't seen it, uh, we're going to be talking as if you have. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so you might want to pause and go watch it now if you haven't already seen it. Um, but a lot of people have viewed it. I checked today; it had 1.2 million hits already. So oh, wow. yeah, it's been it's been out a little while, so we feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah, we feel. I don't feel like there's any spoilers that are going to be coming up in this, at least. I'm going to do um, kind of just divide the discussion into today, and I'm going to kind of just be moderating the discussion for uh, Regina and Toria to to talk about. And of course, I poke the bear every now and then, but. <laughs> <laughs> As we expect you to. Someone's yeah. got to do it. Yeah, exactly. And so first, uh, I figured we would just hit some specific high points in the video and maybe talk about some of the analysis that was done as a whole. And so then take it from there and uh, just sort of make some conclusions about what we think of the idea in general and where we would go from there uh, as an end result of the knowledge that we got from it. First of all, you, you both saw the video. Define the damsel in distress trope. Let, let's just kind of put it out there so that we know what it is we're talking about. Uh, well, if we're going to look at the the damsel in distress is a is a pretty well known story idea. You can see it in fairy tales, in a lot of movies, and very often it's the heroes. The hero sets out on a journey to rescue his princess, his love interest, sometimes a family member of some kind who has been taken by some evil overlord and um, is unable to 
get her get free herself essentially yeah i think just to add to that i think anita's definition was that uh any damsel in distress is someone who or a woman who exists in a story to further the male protagonist's story arc rather than her own right she doesn't really have a story of her own we just know that she's been taken and he's on a journey to to rescue her Exactly. And one of the points that she makes, the one that she continues to come back to, is the idea of object versus subject, where the damsel in distress is not the subject of the story. She's an object she's acted on in terms of um, the story where she, she doesn't actually have agency of her own. And that's a, yeah. that's a real sort of defining part for, for Sarkeesian in terms of her ideas around the damsel as problematic. Well, one of the things that she addresses at the very beginning, and it's, it's, it's really quite well organized as far as going through research type steps where she looks at the history of the trope, which mm-hmm. is good because it doesn't begin with video games. Oh, no, not at all. Yeah, so it goes quite a ways back, and she, I believe, kind of starts at about Greek mythology. So what do you think of this particular type of storyline in history? Why is it um, so prevalent, and is there a basis for it? Is um, it promoted as propaganda, or is it something that's an actual reality? Just talk about the trope in general, through history. Tori, you want to take all those on? Oh, come on. <laughs> Let me toss them all. <laughs> That's mean. I know. But I'm the host. Well, I can do me, that. Let, I'll throw, okay, so I don't want to be a mean not, uh, moderator. I think the trope goes back personally to the beginning of time. Uh, no okay. doubt. Yeah. Uh, and so th- what I like to investigate, because I believe context is king. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can start right in the middle of something. Now, you may say, you know, taking the the context of all of time is too much context to take. But if you stop at any point in time going backwards, you're going to end up blaming or judging the wrong people. So we may have to take a really giant, broad look at time. I think that personally, it goes back to the beginning of time, just the the battle between man and woman in general for power. I think it was from the beginning an imbalance that one should rule over the other one. And it is a complete misconception on both of their parts from the beginning. Um, she didn't like the way he was doing it. He didn't like the way that she was doing it. So it was a constant battle for power. And so it, that's the reason why you see it in Greek mythology and there are fights about the uh, patriarchal system or, or whether a matriarchal system would even work, blah, blah, blah. I, th- I think it's too old. I think it's human nature, I guess is what I'm getting at. That's an interesting thought. Um... Actually, last I think, either last week or week before, um, I was watching a documentary about how religion has kind of evolved over the course of you know the entire existence of the human race, and part of it, a big part of it, was actually looking at why there are so few female deities that exist, mm. Mm. and uh, apparently, like way back, way 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 back before like Christianity became a, a popular religion, there were a lot of female deities, and almost none of them were considered weak. Mm-hmm. They were oftentimes considered to be a lot stronger than any, any male deities because they had the ability to give and create life, right? which was a huge thing. And they were also looked at as being warriors and being able to stick up for themselves and protect both themselves and their offspring, whether it was, you know, deity or 
humankind. So it, it was interesting to kind of watch how that slowly dwindled <laughs> away. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, and that's when uh, Greek mythology kind of took over where it said, okay, no, now we've got all these, all these guys <laughs> just kind of running around going nuts and just wreaking havoc and sleeping with anything that moves and just, and how that kind of puts a lot of the women uh, of the godhood kind of in jeopardy. So you have uh, the goddesses like Hera, uh, who are I, I can't I can't keep Roman and Greek mythology straight, so I might get some names mixed up. Mm-hmm. But so you have Hera, who is always talked about as being a really really sort of bitchy woman because she gets angry with everyone. Right. Um, but then you also have uh, I think you have like a couple couple of good role models like Athena and Artemis, who are very very strong women. Right. But when you look at all the males who kind of surround them like constantly and how they run things, it's like how did we get to that? <laughs> Right. How did they get to be the decision makers? Mm-hmm, exactly. Right. And then right. when Christianity and other similar religions take over where it's simply a male deity and women have no part in that, it's a complete role reversal. Right. And so it's interesting to think that at some point, people were okay with thinking that women were stronger than how people often see them now, which I think is pretty unfortunate. But <laughs> Yeah, th- there, was, there was definitely a shift in, in many religions away from from female deities and from female goddesses and uh, and a movement toward male and and really a movement toward you know singular i mean it went from but part of what we're talking about in this too is going from a polytheistic culture where you believed in multiple gods to a monotheistic culture where you believed in one. And and that movement is part of what created this tension that Rhonda's mentioning where, you know, if we're only going to have one God, then it ended up that that one God had to have a single gender. Mm-hmm. And that was part of what moved us away from like this idea of, I, I won't say, I won't, well, equality to a degree because there was more equality amongst, I think, the Greek and and Roman gods and goddesses than there were once we moved into, like, the era of Christianity in Mm. terms of, you know, um, uh, your female icons being different in terms of how they're they're presented you know the holy mother etc cetera, etc cetera. so so you had a shift from from that you know each one of those goddesses or gods had their own abilities and their own strengths and that's what they were looked at you know um the goddess of war who i can't i can't remember which one was the goddess of war i want to say artemis but i could be wrong <laughs> artemis artemis was the, was the the goddess of the hunt right and so that was part of it there was not it was there was another um would that be Athena then? I think or it might we- be Athena. Yeah. God, see, I don't know these all that well either. <laughs> um, I have really a hard time with the names. So, see, Rhonda, how you made us run off here already? <laughs> yeah, I really, go, I really screwed up because um, <laughs> how we, I, I introduced religion in a backdoor way. Yeah. So yes. this is this is what's going to happen. Okay, we're going to <laughs> we're going to talk about more of the um, validity of the trope as a storyline, but uh, because Toria started it, um, <laughs> I have to defend Christianity mm-hmm. because in in the Hebrew and in the Greek, the name that they use for their Christian God is actually a male female. It is a a non-gendered name. Mm -hmm. And the creation of man and woman were the two sides of the deity. Mm -hmm. The bastardization or the the misrepresentation of what God had intended with that creation. Here I am male, here I am female. 
to represent the the complete God, um, man ruined it. Yeah, I mean, they, yeah. he immediately started doing battle against it, and that's that's where the powers they they started trying to fight over who's who. But yeah, that, that was that's... that was definitely not the. If you study the scripture itself in the in the um, Hebrew, it is definitely not a male god or a patriarchal system it just it talks to you about how really really screwed up the yeah, priest, I probably sorry yeah, I, I should have I should have elaborated what I meant is that yeah. that's kind of how religion evolves and it's more about how yes. people interpret it and that does change yes. over time so it has become this sort of thing was like oh well God's always been a man he's always been a he so yeah. that's just how he is but right. yeah you're, you're, you're completely right yeah yeah there's the qualities of of the God talked about actually in the Hebrew are so feminine Mm -hmm. that um, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's quite beautiful, but let's talk about the trope as a valid storyline because the conclusion I got from watching the video was that it was completely invalid as a storyline. And um, we watched a video today that Regina sent us that kind of w- wanted to contradict that idea. What do you think about the damsel in distress as a storyline? Well, it's one of those, it, it, you know, it, one of the no- notes that, I, that I'm thinking about, and one of the things that kind of came to mind as I was re-watching the video in preparation for today, I was thinking about how it was sort of a natural place for video games to start with the damsel in distress. For a couple of reasons. One, because as we've already mentioned, it is a well-established way of telling a story. Um, like I said, we have, you know, fairy tales and Snow White and, you know, uh, Sleeping Beauty, et cetera, et cetera, who are rescued by their, you know, their male heroes. Um, and two, it's a really easy adventure to create. So it's really easy to take these ideas, these accepted notions of storytelling and move them into video games. So it makes perfect sense that these were sort of the ways that video games started out and the stories that were first told. It makes sense because it's just like any other evolving medium where it started with kind of the beginning. It started with where we, you know, the the sort of default way of telling stories. So I don't think it's invalid. Um, but it definitely is something that I, I, I would say actually has been shaken up a lot in terms of video, mm. video games since, you know, yeah. she was talking about some very old video games and the, this, like, like I introduced, this is part one. So this is her first part. She's going to look at some more modern video games and damsel in distress in the second part. So that discussion is coming. Um, so that was one thing is that it, it makes sense that it starts there. I don't think it makes it invalid, um, of a storytelling idea as much as, um, I would like to see more sort of characterization sometimes of female characters in games. The roles in that, that narrative are just very recognizable to everybody. Yes. Mm -hmm. That basic idea. Yeah. What do you, do you, do you agree with that? What do you think, Toria? Do you think it's a valid storytelling mechanism? I think it's valid because there there's never going to be any lack of women who are kind of in dire straits and who need someone to come after them and save them. That's like I'm not saying that women are always going to be helpless. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that there's never going to be a time when no woman needs help from nobody. Right. So or there's already. always yeah for that yeah there's there's always going to be a point where some woman somewhere is just going you know what I really need some help <laughs> someone come help me mm-hmm. but that's not to say that men can't have the same issue. Right. So it's as much as I dislike it as a trope, it isn't invalid because it 
could theoret- it could mimic real life. And um, I was researching something during my lunch break today when I was panicking about not having enough material <laughs> to discuss this stuff. Um, I found I kind of stumbled upon uh, this article on Wikipedia, which may not be entirely accurate, but the idea of it was pretty neat. Was um, there was a group um, in I think 1399 that uh, of knights that came together because they were sick and tired of hearing about women who were being oppressed and beaten by either their husbands or the lords they worked for, or just I don't know passing drunkards who were going through their towns or whatever. So they decided that they wanted to help these women out so that they wouldn't have to keep hearing about how they were being so put down. But I was going, if that's hmm. that's a real example of how this trope kind of evolved, like it it got to a point where there's this group who was just like, we got to fix this. Right, and it was, and that like was, and that was seven hundred years ago. Yeah, so it's mm. it's definitely um, a valid storyline. I just wish it didn't have to be used as often as it is because I think it's a little bit outdated. Right. Well, well, I and that was one of the points that um, that I agreed with during the video. She said it's it's a lazy means of storytelling, and and I would wholeheartedly agree with that as a go to sort of storyline. Stealing the princess and putting her in a tower is, you know. It's mm-hmm. cliched. <laughs> it's been done. <laughs> well, I pulled out one of um, a, a couple of statements that um, she Anita made in the video, and just wanted to get y'all's uh, responses to it. Ooh, my South came out. It did um, like that actually. <laughs> y'all, y'all. <laughs> um, uh, she said Mario didn't invent the motif, but it set the standard for video games as the go-to motif a way to tap into adolescent male power fantasies. Well, yeah, rescuing the princess is a pretty powerful thing, but I I don't necessarily think that they are adolescent male power fantasies, I guess. That would be what I would take seems It seems a very, very specific way to to put it. I think that's kind of how she views it personally. Exactly. Although I I kind of agree with it on a certain level, um, because I do think that... And I, I'm going to make this very general. I'm not going to say that everybody does this because obviously <laughs> that's just not the way to have this kind of discussion. Um, but there are a lot of people, guys included out there, who want to be in control, especially when they're playing a game, right? You want to be like you're controlling how the game is going. Right. So you're kind of in that seat of I get to decide what happens here. And I think part of this trope is that if you're in control of this game, you get the reward, which is this princess or this woman who you've rescued or whatever. So it's almost like they kind of expect that they almost want to have that reward of her love or her affection or whatever it is that he'll get out of it. Mm-hmm. So, it, and I think that translates to real life in a lot of ways. Um, I'm going to keep referring to articles that I've read in the past week because it all seems somehow relevant here. That works. Um, but I was reading an article, uh, I think yesterday that was talking about this the sense of entitlement that has kind of become just so like it's oversaturating our culture um and one of one of the commenters was talking about uh sex specifically and he was going on about how um his girlfriend never appreciates when he holds doors open for her when he cooks for her and how he always does this and does that and how he never gets anything back from it just because like and he was like exactly he was talking about sex specifically right so, so wait, wait, just, wait, wait, wait wait so so he thought because he opened doors for her he deserved sex exactly wow oh my god yeah. so, oh, you can imagine the backlash that he got from I can imagine, yeah. so i so i was kind of thinking about that when i was uh when i was watching the video last night and i was going it's kind of the same as saying if i rescued you 
I deserve to have you. Right. And that's... You be, you become, uh, as an yeah. object, you become acted upon. And I can act yeah. upon you because I have rescued you. And I opened the door for you. So yeah. I act <laughs> on you. Don't yeah, so I th- it works that way, but thanks. <laughs> No, but that's that's kind of how I see a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of these video like not all of them, but a lot of these video games where you don't get a lot of character uh, character development for the princess or for whoever's being rescued. It's like you know all about what the protagonist wants, right. and you know that he wants her, right? And that's all you get. <laughs> well, and we don't even necessarily know in in I mean in in the older games, the earlier early Mario games that she was talking about, the early Zelda games, we don't even know, like, the backstory between Mario and Princess Peach or or Zelda and Link. We don't even really have a, a depth of their their relationship. We just know that, you know, he needs to save her. And, and that's also, you know, I, I think it doesn't do justice to what the medium and what, what the storytelling that could happen in games um, when it kind of falls back on, on that idea. It, well, at the same time, uh, we've got to recognize the limits within the games that were working because the, I, I doubt in the beginning that story was a huge part. Oh yeah. Not, <laughs> it not, was, it was mechanics and exactly. gameplay. Yeah. And so to make any type of conclusions, which to me goes back to what I think about this statement, I, you never want to make assumptions about someone's motives or what they were thinking Mm -hmm. because you can just, you can never ever know that. And I think to make judgments about games that old, you've got to realize how new gaming is and how very little they were actually able to do back then. I mean, you know, they could have, they could have just made them like, you know, apples and bananas and, and, you know, it wouldn't have made any difference whatsoever. They just used something recognizable and identifiable. But I don't think that outside of that, there well, were any I, I, real statements. I, I don't know in terms of that. That's a pretty extreme difference. I mean, taking, you know, oh, t- yeah. taking, uh, you know, human representations and trying to make them, you know, um, uh, fruit instead, you know, would, would really be a very different thing. And, and, you know, are we really going to worry about the banana rescuing the strawberry? No. Well, I mean, we worry, (laughs) we worried about Pac-Man eating dots. (laughs) I was more worried about Pac-Man getting eaten by the ghosts and getting the cherries. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, (laughs) there have been all kinds of fantasized, um, characters and stylized characters. Right. All I'm saying is, you know, I don't think it can be analyzed that deeply. Well, I, I would agree and and disagree at the same time. I think what ends up happening is when there is less material, then that material becomes more important in terms of how the story is told. So when you only have a quick glimpse of how a character is being portrayed, then those glimpses are more important than a longer, you know, than a movie would have been or a TV show might have been in the same the, the same kind of setup. One of the examples that I really actually appreciated was I, it was one of the fighter games where the first scene, the opening scene, is the girlfriend getting punched in the stomach and then thrown over the oh, shoulder. God. Oh, was that was that Double Dragon? Or I think that was Double Dragon. Yes, it was Double Dragon, and that was an excellent example of how much was said in you know, with not a lot of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And and because they continued to use the same uh, setup over and over and mm-hmm. over again mm-hmm. meant that, you know, made it even just that much, made it, made it have that much more impact. 
And so, so I think in those terms, we, we can look at the, the glimpses of story we have in these older yeah. games as being significant. But I don't think they need to be quite so, I, I don't know if it was, I don't want to say blown out of proportion, but I feel like everything was taken and made bigger. I think that's part of what you're saying, Rhonda. Everything yeah. was made bigger than it needed to be. My other point about the, the especially like the scene that you were talking about mm-hmm. and so horrible to watch. And then all the other examples used, the, the thing that was not pointed out is that the female character is being objectified by the villain. Yes, absolutely. The female character is not being objectified by the hero. The, the, the one who punches her in the stomach and throws her over the shoulder it's is the an example yes. of the bad guy. Yes, excellent. Rhonda, you're and so awesome. I love you. Thanks. It, 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 and, and it drives... The good guy, and it should. Right. And I mean, tell me, all right, just tell me your feelings, okay, from this story, okay? Um, I was having surgery several years ago, and this was early in my marriage, and it was a very traumatic event. It was the most, the first kind of life crisis thing that we were having. So we were all in the the, uh, check in room, I was laying in the bed. And my husband came over and sat on the edge of the bed with his back to me. And I'm sitting there. I'm very nervous. And I'm like, what the hell? I was like, why is his back to me? I need him to be looking at me and holding me and holding my hand and making me feel better. And everybody else was in the room and doctors were coming in and people sticking me with shots and crap I hated. And so I finally, I just grabbed his arm and I was like, what's, what's going on? He goes, I don't know. I, I don't know. He's, I don't know what to do. So I am sitting between you and whatever comes in the door. Oh, <laughs> that's the sweetest thing ever. <laughs> My God. I mean, do you see how that makes you feel? Yeah. He knew he, he, he knows. I, I mean, you guys, Regina, you've met me. I yeah. don't need rescuing. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not at all. (laughs) I also don't need any of my doors open. Mm -hmm. I don't need any of that. But what I tell other people when they see it is like, I get it because I deserve it. I get it because I'm precious and I shouldn't have to touch that nasty doorknob. It's not objectifying me. And in the same way in that room, he was not objectifying me either. He was playing his role and I was playing mine. I was stronger in many ways than he was, but he did the only thing he knew how to do. And see that, that emotion that's what they're tapping into. Right. Right. And and that's, that's the reaction that Tori and I both had that, that, that gut emotion where you're like, you know, you're in a, cause in that situation, especially in the hospital, especially with upcoming surgery, you're in a situation where so much is out of your control Oh, yeah. that there's, there's very little you can do. There's very little your partner can do for you. And, and it, what he did was symbolic. Now, had he not explained it to you, that was the difference is before yes. he explained it to you, you were like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> right. Yeah. And had he never explained it to you probably would have carried, you know, some sort of resentment against it, not understanding his, mm-hmm. his, 
his thought behind it. And I guess that's part of the the problem with the examples that Sarkeesian looked at in this in this first part, you know, because they are the older stories, there isn't explanation, there isn't yeah. exposition in terms of storytelling. That's that's just sort of left out because as you said, that wasn't part of what was driving the genre at the time, especially since it was so new and such a beginning. So, you know, maybe that's what we need is a little bit more unpacking of feelings and emotions in our characters. Well, well I, I don't want to move on too quickly, Toria. Do you want to say add anything? Um, I was kind of thinking that with the older games, um, I think why she jumps to those conclusions about why he wants to rescue those princesses or those women in particular is that because we don't have any context, we kind of automatically jump to what makes the most sense to us given the info right. we have. Right. Mm-hmm. And because this trope is so overused and so ubiquitous, it it fits and it makes sense and we just kind of run with it. Right. Um, and that's that's kind of the feeling that I get. I, I understand that there could be other options of, of uh, other explanations of what could be happening, but again, just because we don't have much information <laughs> to make right. an educated guess of what's going on, yeah. it's a lot easier to just kind of slot them in and going, okay, man rescuing woman, go. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and here's our interpretation of it. I think, yeah. you know, to, to relate back to a recent episode where Rhonda and I were talking about the Big Bang Theory and the... Um, the female characters getting dressed up as Disney princesses. I think that that was part of my sort of gut reaction to why do they have to dress mm. up as princesses is this trope. It comes back to this idea that here are three women, female characters who I think are, you know, powerful in their own right. Why do they have to dress up as, as fairy tale princesses? And, and the representations those princesses hold in and of themselves are all stories of, at least almost all stories of, you know, this, this trope of this idea of needing to be rescued. And I think that that will always, that's one of the reasons why I keep coming back to, because I've done a lot of research and I've taught about fairy tales a lot. So I always kind of come back to those as part of our mythology and part of our stories that we're sort of building all of our other stories on. And this idea is so ingrained in that storytelling trope that it's just, I just don't like it. <laughs> so it's, it's so ingrained that if you look at, especially Disney movies in particular, just because they're so, you know, they're so familiar to so many people. Mm-hmm. If you go through a list of their animated movies, like right from Snow White all the way up till like current, mm-hmm. At least 75% of them have a damsel in distress trope in yeah. play. Yeah. Yeah. It was so depressing to look at that list and I was going, oh God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. again, and it kind of depends on how you want to look at it in terms of, uh, in terms of the severity of the situation that she needs to be rescued from. Right. It's like you could go from, I know, looking at Sleeping Beauty and how she cannot, literally cannot save herself. Right. And if you really wanted to be picky, you could go all the way up to Beauty and the Beast and going, okay, well, Chip has to rescue Belle out of the cellar. <laughs> but but most of them are just yeah. so obvious. It's like there's this woman who's cursed and she's asleep, or there's this girl who's tied to a chair and she can't get out, so she's rescued by a cat. <laughs> it's like, and, it, and it gets so ridiculous when you start looking at it and like, do we not have any other stories that we could use? Right, right. Are there any other ways we can address this and make yeah. it engaging without having it be that? Yeah. Yeah, or tell it more like a hospital story. Exactly. Yeah, that's So true. It, it has the emotion that you just brought forth in it, where, where we feel it in a way that that you don't feel it when it's it's the princess who's trapped in the tower by the, the evil overlord. Well, th- that segue actually... Um, very well into the next thing I wanted to bring up. I just wanted to ask about some different points that she made and find out what whether you agree or disagree 
is damsel, the, the word damsel, a reference to damsel, a synonym for weak? I have so many troubles with this, <laughs> with this one question. Um, <laughs> if you... If you think of the word damsel, at least in my mind, when I hear it, I automatically link it with damsel in distress, mm. which automatically puts that word in a position of just like, oh, can't do anything. <laughs> like, must yeah. be rescued, needs a guy, mm. needs someone to come mm-hmm. save her, which sucks because it's, as, as a word, is fairly innocent. But if you look at the dictionary definition of it, um, it just means a young woman who is unmarried. Right. Even that, though. Um, in patriarchal societies, is seen as a weakness because you are a woman who doesn't have a man to look out for you should you need him. Right. Which still makes me kind of sad. So I decided to look at um, this kind of counterpart in terms of vernacular. So if you look at damsel and flip it over to what that would mean for a guy, which would be a bachelor, a man who's never been unmarried, or who has never been married, sorry. There's a second definition, which I found kind of interesting. Um, and it means... Um, it was an animal or human who has never found a mate, especially because he was beaten out by a stronger opponent. Whoa. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. That's, um, that's telling. <laughs> it's like, wow. It's, it was, it was, a, I'd never heard that aspect of the definition before. Huh. And it was interesting to see how damsel is just about your marital status. Whereas if you're talking about a bachelor, it brings a power play into it. Right. So it's like, I don't have a mate because I'm not strong enough to have one. Right, right. So I, I don't know. Talk, talking about what the words mean is kind of, <laughs> it was kind of confusing to think about for a little while. Yeah. But. Well, it's, it's and I, I think that part of the, the point that you have, Toria, too, about damsel just in your mind automatically being associated with in distress is, you know, the terms of the connotation, sort of the way words take on a life of their own mm. because of how they're used and because of how people talk about them in the context in which which they tend to come up. Um, I'm thinking, too, and, and I'm not a linguist, so I won't, I won't pretend to be. However, I'm wondering if dame is the married version of damsel. It probably is. It would make sense. Because when we think of dame and the people who we call dame in our culture, it has a very different connotation than damsel yes. does. Yeah. And I think that is, you know, partially in terms of marital status, but it's also you don't generally get to be called dame until you've reached a certain status in something. Yeah, like I think I think the two that come to mind are um, Dame Judi Dench mm-hmm. and um, uh, Maggie Smith. Yes, exactly. We're both amazing, amazing women. Exactly, and those those were the two examples that popped into my head of people who are that that title is associated with on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but why don't we tell stories about dames very often? <laughs> what, you know, what? it's it's sad that my, my the first thought that ran through my head, and I feel so sick this, was that because they have no stories left to tell, which is so upsetting oh, to me. That's my first thought. Shame on you. I know. <laughs> See, that's. I think I've. Oh my god, I've been reading too many article like comment sections where that's the kind of mindset that automatically comes up and then people kind of bash them for it. Mm-hmm. But that's, I don't know. It's because they don't have anyone to come after them. They don't have, and it's, I think it's part of the media as well. Um, okay, I'm going to kind of cut this in, cut this for a second. Have either of you seen the documentary Misrepresentation? I've no. seen scenes of it. I haven't watched it beginning to end. I, I think you should both watch it. Yeah. <laughs> I think everybody should watch it. Um, but part of what they talk about um, in one aspect or um, one segment of it is how age plays into media representation mm-hmm. of women specifically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. um, and there was, I'm trying to remember the statistic. Um, I think it was uh, women who are like 30 and younger 
make up 74% of the women that we see on TV. And women who are, I think, 50 and older make up like 11%, even though they make up half the population of the United States. Yeah. So I think I think that's rather telling. And since maybe because we don't see the stories of these accomplished, esteemed women being told, we maybe were taught subconsciously that they just don't have stories that they don't have stories or they they have stories that aren't worth telling yeah you know part of you know part of that statistic is that um youth is fetishized exactly you know i was i was in a in a gender one of my gender studies classes and my teacher uh, studied cheerleaders and she brought in pictures of very elderly cheerleaders Mm-hmm. And they were some of the most disturbing things I had ever seen <laughs> because you're so used to seeing, you know, bright, young, you know, girls as cheerleaders, not, you know, not older women as cheerleaders. And it was just such a shock to think, oh, I hadn't even I hadn't done the the critical work myself looking at these images to recognize that this had been this, you know, this fetishism had sort of been created around, oh, cheerleaders are young, cute beautiful women as opposed to oh well why does that have to be the case it doesn't have to be the case but it is Mm. how we sort of fetishize youth and that's one of the reasons why I think we see so many more young women on tv and in movies and etc etc because we we want to tell those stories and we want the stories of you know then we're kind of talking around this and let's just sort of bring it out that idea um, of damsel as weak is is part of what's going on here part of the reason why uh, as she said, you know, I, I don't think it's specific to adolescent boys necessarily, but um, the idea of wanting to go out and rescue the damsel um, and the damsel being weak and needing rescue is is part of what's the problem here is we want to keep telling those stories because that idea of women as weak, which is completely wrong, is, <laughs> is something that, you know, that for whatever reason keeps coming up in pop culture, you know, it comes up in, you know, it's one of the greatest critiques of Buffy was, you know, here we had Buffy as like this, you know, super powerful female character. And, mm-hmm. you know, she's one of my favorites. I put her in, you know, top of my, you know, my ass kickers list. <laughs> um, she's, you know, my female ass kicker. She's one of my favorites. But in the early days of the series, in the early seasons, sh- she always had Willow to rescue, right? Mm, and, until yeah. Willow became empowered with magic. Once Willow became empowered with magic, what happens? They bring in Dawn. And then Dawn always needs to be rescued. So we end up having this continuation of the damsel's story, even with a powerful female character at the at the helm. And so that's where these get these things get problematic, and where we we end up, you know, with real sort of difficult questions to ask. Why do we always seem to have to have a damsel to be rescued? I think something that I would have liked to see in like relatively modern media was, um, in have you either of you seen Three Hundred? No. No. Okay. Yes, it's, I love you know, Three Hundred. <laughs> But you know what it's about, Regina? Yes, I do. Yes, okay. Um, Spartan culture, that movie entirely excludes the women of Spartan culture, which is really unfortunate because they are some of the most kick-ass women who have ever walked the earth. (laughs) I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, If you look at uh, the study of women in Sparta, they were some of the most empowered women, I think, even in terms of, like, our terms of empowerment. Um, because back in the day, they were allowed to own their own land. They were allowed to get divorced and they weren't, you know, they weren't turned into a pariah over it, which is still rare today with some people. Um, they, they were expected to be as fit as the men were. So they took all the same physical training that the men did. They were expected to be as strong as warriors were. Um, and their 
the only way that they were recognized in death, like, okay, if men in Sparta died in battle, that was the only way they had their names actually carved on their tombstones when they died. For women, that was equated with dying in childbirth. They saw that as being equal to dying for your country. And I think seeing those women who are ex- who are just expected to be as strong as a man would be so awesome because we never ever see that. Yeah. That one. And it's depressing that that was so long ago, and that that and that still isn't prevalent today. And it's edited out of stories of that time that are told exactly. from that time. Yeah, exactly. Well, I don't think we answered your question, Rhonda. <laughs> no, no, no. You uh, you did, and you actually segued into um, the other bear I want to poke with a really sharp stick um, <laughs> because because you're all you're all talking about it, and I tend to disagree with Toria about three hundred. So this is just really great talk. Um, because the head of the Spartan army made a point in the movie of telling the uh, messengers, you know, the messengers like, um, you let your women talk. And he's like, women are equal here. Yeah. And that's the queen. Mm -hmm. And she, in the end, she won the political battle, which was the smart battle, uh, the brains battle. Uh, she won that. Now the movie was about the war. Mm-hmm. And there was a war um, at the front and there was a war at home. But I don't have a problem with the creative the creative direction that they decided to do the, most of the movie out of the war. I mean, it was based oh, on no, the comic book anyway. So Yeah, that, that's not what I had a problem with. I was more meaning that I wish we could see more of that in the media in general. Yeah. Um, oh, just yeah. Because, yeah, because I, 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 I remember oh, yeah. that line specifically because I was just like, yes. <laughs> This yeah. is good. I like this. This is this is awesome. Then I was a little and disappointed. She wasn't that surprised she wasn't... to hear it either. No, like she was just like, she damn right. Was... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that did segue into the uh, thing we've all been talking around, and one of the statements that was made in the video: um, the belief that somehow women are naturally weaker gender is a deeply ingrained, socially constructed myth, which, of course is completely false. Now then, my question is, what is the definition of weaker? Because, because I have a very, very hard time with anybody who comes up to me and says, physically, I am as strong as a man. When it comes to punching, knocking out. Now, can a woman be? Yes. A- naturally. Across the board, naturally, no. I have spent 20 years trying to beat my husband in wrestling. I can't do it. Are you naked when you're doing this? That's not really okay. wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, oh my God. Derailed. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is, this she won't let me derail something like that. Not that easily. <laughs> oh, no. This is real wrestling. I get, I get, I'm more awake in the morning than he is. And so I see that as a weak point. I and so I try to get him pinned at that point mm. and tickle his feet and stuff like that. Even at that point, he easily overpowers me. Is this before so, coffee? Like, um, you for find- me? Yeah. Wow, you're mean. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's oh, I, I want to differentiate because I, I want to make clear, because to me, I do not agree with Anita's statement that it is a myth and that it's completely false. If you're talking about uh, intelligence, um, 
uh, or emotional personality, yeah, yeah. emotional strength, yeah. soul, spirit, and all of that. Absolutely not. That is so untrue. It's unbelievable. But I really have a hard time not recognizing that. Yeah, there are differences. A man can't have a baby. Yep. Yeah. And a woman cannot naturally pin down a guy. Now I will I sh- not go up against. Um, I can't rem- know her name. Ali's daughter. Muhammad Ali's daughter. Yeah, I imagine she could pin my husband down. But (laughs) (laughs) I also saw Regina swing a club at PAX. And (laughs) I saw you swing a club at PAX, too. Yes, you did. (laughs) I was pretty pathetic, though. You were not quite as pathetic as I was. (laughs) I could barely hit the target. That was sad. Yeah. No, you know, I, I, I don't. I, I don't disagree that, you know, that women are are generally not as physically strong as men in, in terms of upper body strength, et cetera. Um, women generally have stronger legs than men do. I mean, it's just the way, yeah, you know, exactly. biology kind of works. But, but part of that is socially constructed because you can actually look at studies. There have been people who have done studies of, um, you know, people raising little boys and people raising little girls. And we're much more likely to roughhouse with little boys, um, to, oh. to, to, to wrestle and those, those things just, uh, we're, we are way more likely or way more likely to coddle little girls in terms of the way that they, mm-hmm. you know, if they get hurt, we'll stop, you know, th- those kind of the reactions. And that's part of, of the social construction of gender. Yes. We can't get away from the impact that that ends up having. Um, and, and I think part of, part of the problem with the idea of women being weaker, um, is, it does come from like patriarchy and and putting more value on the kinds of strength that men have over the kinds of strength that women have. Women, There's- yes, can have child, can you know give birth, and that is an amazingly powerful and and huge thing. But they are also vulnerable because they can give birth, and yes. and and there's a lot more danger and a lot of you know a lot of things that that uh, tend to be more dismissed because of that. And, and I think that that's part of, you know, where this tension comes from. I don't know if that really sort of addresses what you were asking Rhonda, but that's, those are the thoughts that kind of came to mind for me. I think part of um, something that came to my mind when we were talking about the more like the emotional aspect of it, cause I, I am inclined to agree that women are generally not as physically strong as men are who definitely can be. But mm-hmm. I think just generally speaking, we're just a little, <laughs> we're a little bit behind on that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but another uh, another segment from misrepresentation was talking about how women are portrayed um, as being more emotional and therefore not being able to handle right. having power. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a clip of I I can't remember his name for the life of me because American politics is just not <laughs> my cup of tea. But there was um, a, either a governor or a senator um, who was talking about how about what he wanted the world to be like for his children. And he was getting so emotional about how he wanted this world to be so perfect for his kids so that they could have more than he ever did. And he starts crying, like full out crying when he's on camera. And like, no one says a word. They just they just let him cry. And then the, they cut back to a newscaster who says, well, I wonder if that had been, I think it was Nancy Pelosi. If, if that had been Nancy Pelosi, would they have started making remarks about how she's emotional? And I was yeah. like, you can bet they would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can bet you they would. believe it. Absolutely. There'd be no doubt. Yeah. So it's it's that yeah. kind of weird <laughs> imbalance. It's like, yes. if, if a man can be emotional to that extent, you kind of think, okay, well, something like it really must mean a lot to him if he's crying on camera, because that's just not what guys do. Right. Whereas if a woman starts crying over something, it's just like, 
she's just she's just like worked up over something just she'll get over it yeah so I think it's it's difficult to talk about in terms yeah it's it's weird and kind of unfortunate to think about and I think that has a lot to do with how men are kind of are taught that they can't really show emotion openly which sucks for them so much because it kind of takes away that aspect of their Mm self-expression and I I think it hinders them a lot in terms of how they handle things that happen to them and and those who are close to them. Because if you can't be emotionally open with someone, then what kind of relationships do you have? Like, how how does that affect your mind and your relationships and even your body, like your physical health? Like, that's... Yeah. If you're you're (laughs) telling them that that emotion is a weakness, then they they don't want to show that. Exactly. But if you have someone completely devoid of emotion, you want that person making decisions. Mm-hmm. You don't want that person in your life. No. <laughs> At all, okay, really. so so tell me this: what's the difference in um, a kingdom that has a um, a well loved, strong king leader and a very well loved, strong queen, and a warring nation comes in and decides to kidnap one of them? to uh, provoke a war which one's going to have the most impact that is an interesting question you know my first thought is we don't hear a lot of stories of men being kidnapped no that's kind of what i was thinking too just in general and and i think i think that's kind of interesting and and something i hadn't really thought about before in in terms of especially if we're going to relate back to to the the video itself and you know tropes against women in video games we don't see men being kidnapped very often because I think most stories don't want to display the male protagonist as having that as a weakness. Because in order to to let yourself be kidnapped, you'd have to be vulnerable in some way. And it's much easier to think about women being vulnerable. Now, with that said, I, I have no idea, which I, I can't, I, I'm trying to even think, I'm just racking my brain right now to see if I can come up with a time when I remember a male hero being kidnapped. I've got one. Okay, of. good. It's it's kind of a little bit of a stretch to make it work, but I think it I think it's close enough. Um, would be Air Force One. Oh um, yeah. I think uh, it was a Harrison Ford movie from a early early nineties, I think, and he was yeah. um, he was playing the president of the United States. And spoilers for anybody who doesn't want to hear spoilers for like a twenty five year old movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's he's flying somewhere. I think he was he was leaving Russia after basically saying, you know what, this guy, whatever warm criminal was just jailed. He's like, you know what, we're not going to take any more of this stuff. We like if terrorists are going to threaten us, we're going to act on it. We're not going to take any guff from them and yada yada so these terrorists hijack his plane Mm -hmm. and he's everybody thinks he kind of that he's managed to escape somehow but they find out that he's still on the plane and he's trying to figure out okay well how (laughs) how do i deal with this and they keep cutting back to washington where the vice president is a woman and the terrorists are negotiating with her Mm. and the power struggle that goes on there Mm. and it was it was interesting to see how that was handled because you can still see all the men in Washington behind her back trying to kind of, you know, get around her and solve the problem themselves because she apparently can't handle it. So I'm kind of thinking that it would almost be a bigger deal if the king were kidnapped because I wonder yeah. if people would be doubting the queen's ability to lead, lead the charge and get him dead. back. Yeah. Whereas if a woman is kidnapped, it's like, okay, well, guys, just go get her. Right. <laughs> because it's understood. Yeah. yeah and accepted. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so but wh- if the if if as the warring as the warring faction, 
if you want to raise the most indignation of the nation, which one are you going to kidnap? If you want to upset the people the most, I mean, that's the reason why you're, I mean, everybody's saying you can't think of an example when the man's kidnapped. That's because the woman is kidnapped. Right. Mm -hmm. That's because it raises the absolute most emotion amongst the people. I mean, it's like, how could you dare do that? Yeah. It's just an interesting thought. Yeah. Okay. So let's, um, gosh, we're having so much fun. Um, (laughs) Um, okay, so I'm going to go ahead and move on, and we're just going to talk about the analysis in general and the perspective of the video in this this series. It's the beginning of a series, and does first of all, I, I had a general question, and it, it, it I'll just let you guys run with it from here. Um, does Anita's perspective align with what you know of as the new feminism? <laughs> And Regina, that's like a wide open door. <laughs> yep, I can, you can run with it if you want. <laughs> and that may not be the question, actually. Yeah. I, that's just a. That's just a. Um, I, again, that's a, just a weak poke at the bear to let you get started. <laughs> right. Well. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's interesting for me because as you know, as a media critic myself, I, I look at this series of videos and and the ideas that she set out with. And, and I can appreciate them. I, I appreciate the idea of looking at how story tropes and, and storytelling methods work in video games or don't work or the problems with them and, and all the things that she has, the, the sort of grand big picture ideas of what she has in the series, I think are good. And they're conversations that need to be had. But it makes me really, really thankful that I made the decision that I made to study gamers and not games. Mm. Because the biggest problem for me with her analysis, and I'm sure it's going to continue through the entire series, is it doesn't take the gamer into consideration. Mm. Looking at the trope, looking at the way um, she discusses the damsel in distress completely removes the gamer's experience of it. I played Link, and I played Mario, and I rescued Peach, and I rescued Zelda, and you know what? I was empowered by both those experiences. And it didn't matter that I was playing male characters. I was a powerful female doing that. And I think to remove that from the equation in terms of her analysis, it just makes it really weak. It just makes it really, honestly for me, a very empty analysis. And I can't, I can't step away from that. And I can't step away from thinking about it in those terms. Like this doesn't take the people who are playing the games into consideration and therefore doesn't have the kind of depth that I think games analysis should have. So there. Wow, you just ended the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's her whole assumption is that women only identify with female characters. And that's mm-hmm. just completely false. It's just completely false. Because if there, if we should be saying anything about gender, it's that we can put ourselves in the place of someone in who ha- who is a different gender than us. And that's what you do in these games. You know, you're not playing Peach. You're not the one sitting in the castle waiting to be rescued. You're Mario out there jumping over the turtles and throw you know throwing them at the bad guys and beating up Bowser and beating the ghosts off. You are that, and and that's what makes it. That's what makes gaming fantastic, and that's what makes it a place of agency and empowerment in a way that looking at tropes versus women in video games and the damsel in distress just completely missed the mark. 
So that's my yeah, two cents. I mean, when I play, <laughs> I mean, it, if I play a male character, I'm not imagining myself as a guy. No. And it, I mean, it doesn't matter. I take on all of those abilities. And I mean, we've addressed the, the issues before when we've talked about um, game makers who say, well, female protagonist won't sell. Right. It's like, well, um, women are playing guys right now and we don't seem to run into any gamers who have a problem with the gender of the protagonist is. Right. They don't care. They want a good game. Right. That's not what they're talking about. Like you said in one episode, that's not what the people are talking about when they talk about the game. You know, oh, I had to play a guy and wow, that was really weird. I mean, it is, you know, we've talked about, you know, people wanting to play themselves and wanting to be able to see themselves. But the idea that, you know, oh, nobody's going to want to play a female. Yeah, overall, they want an experience. Exactly. They want a good story. And they want a story that doesn't have flat characters and, you know, lazy storytelling tropes. (laughs) 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 I can agree with that part of her analysis. Yep. Yep. Well, what do you think overall, Toria? I don't know. It's really hard for me to answer this question. Um, I think... I have a bit of a mental block when it comes to answering this question because all of the games she talked about are games that I have like little to no experience with. Mm-hmm. So I don't have that same sort of background in my mind for what's going on in the stories. Um, but I do agree with what's been said already. Was if you take the game out of the equation, you're missing a whole, like a big chunk of what's going on in terms of this trope. Yeah. So I I don't know. I'm really, I'm really suck. <laughs> what else I could say? I think, I think Regina is really topped the cake with that one that was a good one thank you well tell me toria if you if you could make a a female protagonist um situation or or narrative and a movie or a tv show or a game what would you do different what what let's say the top three characteristics that you think are missing oh heavens um what immediately comes to mind is something that I've seen on Tumblr a couple billion times already because it tends to make the circuit, um, is that there's a difference between what people think is a strong female character and what actually qualifies as a strong female character. And it's basically people expect strong female characters to be, you know, like physically strong, like emotionally strong. They're not going to cry. They're not going to break down. They're not going to ever have like a crisis of any kind. They've got to be just like perfect, perfect woman in terms of what society tells us women we should be, really. But then what really qualifies someone to be a strong female character is to just have personal growth and to persevere. That's mm. all it takes. Mm. And I really think that that's missing from a lot of games that do have female protagonists. And there was um, there was the comment on another... I was actually looking for, uh, for a list of games with female protagonists because I don't actually play a ton of games. So I was just like, I need to, you know, try and do some research here so I can know what I'm talking about. And there was a comment that I saw... Um, about someone who was talking about how they really can't stand a lot of female protagonists in games. And he's going, because they always tend to play the victims, they're emotional, they're reliant on other people for their success, and they're weak. And I was like, I... (laughs) I was like, oh, oh God. (laughs) What's going on? And then I was thinking, okay, well, what about Tomb Raider? Mm -hmm. She's not usually seen as weak. Like, I guess that kind of got thrown up in the air a little bit with the newer game that came out. But when you think about that, like she's she's made into a victim by her own story, but she pushes through it. She's she's emotional because she's scared and she's kind of going like, I don't know what's going to happen to me. Like, I just need to fight through this. And I think that in a lot of ways is a good, strong character. She does have emotions and she's allowed to show them mm. because she's in a really, really awful situation. And I think for a lot of people, 
that's something that would need to be that that would be a bit of a hurdle. But that's something that I would want to have in a game. I would want to have a protagonist, especially if it was female. I would want them to have emotions that are appropriate to the situation, and not overblow them and not like underestimate them either. Nice. Because I, because yeah. that that's something that is missing from a lot of well both movies and games I think yeah and and a lot of different kind of media is that emotions are relevant they're mm-hmm. the reason we do pretty much everything we do so if you completely remove that or if you say oh well this emotion is stupid because it just means you're overreacting to something then just shove it in a corner and get rid of it it's like well no that take that, that's a big motivation for why you do things yeah. so I think emotion would be a huge a huge thing for my character if I were to create one. Um, I, I can't even say what else I would throw in there. It's just, that's basically all I want. Oh, is that's I want great. A character that's, who's, yeah. that's pretty perfect. Yeah, I just that want a character great. who's, who's yeah. strong, who can take care of herself emotionally because that's what you got to do to get through things. Yeah. And then you just carry on as best you possibly can. Yeah, nicely said. Well, I know that we could talk all night. We, I mean, we hit so many gigantic, enormous subjects. My God, we even talked about religion. <laughs> <laughs> It makes me want to have Sandy on the show again. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've already contacted her. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, well, anyway, if you guys have not seen uh, Anita Sarkeesian, if you haven't seen her video, we have it embedded in our March 3rd blog post, but you can very easily find it at feministfrequency.com. Um, we hope this generates some discussion with you guys. <laughs> if it doesn't, you're dead. Um, <laughs> and be sure we're, we're on pretty much all the social media sites. Just go to gameongirl.com and you can find a place to uh, <laughs> voice your opinion. <laughs> we, we'd love to hear about it. Uh, I only want to make one more uh, uh, special note. If you're not following us on Twitter, be sure and check it out. Uh, We are uh, sticking out tweets every now and then to do some giveaways for swag. So be sure and look for the hashtag G-O-G-Gimme, G-I-M-M-E. Retweet or post on one of the appropriate blog posts, and I'll put your name for a drawing. We've got some awesome swag from PAX and some people that we've uh, interviewed recently. Yeah, don't miss out. Mm-mm. You've been listening to Game on Girl. I'm the co-host, Rhonda Oglesby. You can follow me on Twitter at R-H-O, R-H-O-O-M, or you can email me at Rhonda at GameOnGirl.com. And I'm your host, Regina McMenemy, or Doc Liz with two Zs, as I'm known on Twitter. Thanks so much to Toria for joining us for this discussion today and uh, bringing some great insights. We really appreciate it. Uh, Yay, Toria! Yeah. <laughs> you can follow Toria on Twitter at missing underscore chapter, and I'll have links to her Twitter available on the website as well when we post this episode. Game on Girl is available on iTunes and Stitcher streaming and Podcast Lounge for window phone users. These links, along with references made in the show, can be found on our site, gameongirl.com. This podcast is edited by Ryan Broom at Desert Tree Media, and the theme song, Good Day, by Triple Fox, is used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Thanks for listening, and until next time, game on! Game on!